Hello and welcome back, or welcome for the first time. This episode is the first of four explorations with the philosophers Cadell Last, OG Rose, and Alex Ebert, streamed live to Cadell's YouTube channel on the 6th of June. Cadell is the author of Global Brain Singularity, which focuses on the nature of temporality and the future of consciousness, and co author of Sex, Masculinity, God, which focuses on the consequences of libidinal energy, gender identity, and theological mysteries for our knowledge constructs. Really excellent YouTube channel as well, with loads of educational content on thinkers like Freud, Hegel, Zizek, and more worth checking out if you hold those interests. Alex Ebo is a musician and lead singer of the band Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, and brings a unique background of experience to his philosophical thinking. I really enjoyed several dialogues with Alex. You'll find links to his work on the philosophy of cool and other pieces in the show notes. OG Rose is the pen name for the philosopher Daniel Garner and his wife, Michelle. They've published works in a variety of publications. I've also really enjoyed getting to know Daniel too. I think he's got loads to add to this conversation. So to introduce this series on the philosophy of lack, allow me to read Cadell's summary introduction. Quote, Philosophy is a discipline classically concerned with being, or the presence of something. Why is there something rather than nothing? However, after more than a century of psychoanalysis, we may say that the human subject is an entity of lack, or that lacks. Thus, the human subject is a being constituted by a contradictory identity, constantly attempting to fill in the persistent feeling that there is something missing. In this conversation series, we seek to inquire deeper about the experience and the philosophy of lack, and ultimately, what such a philosophy might say about our contemporary culture. Why is there nothing rather than something? End quote. At the time of releasing this podcast, we're currently at the halfway mark of the series. The second of four was live-streamed on Cadell's channel on the 17th of July. You can listen to that via the link in the show notes if you find what follows worthwhile. What you're about to hear is a mutual exploration and process of coming to terms across varied language backgrounds and interests centred on this inquiry into the philosophy of lack. It's a mutual endeavour, but also, I think fair to say, a portal of inquiry that Cadell in particular is summoning. After all, he invited myself, OG and Alex together for this series. His will be the first voice you hear, and after that we'll follow an order of speaking. I do think whether or not there is an observed rotational order of speakers creates a different medium for exchange than when there's no order, or of course when there are time limits. I personally found it quite challenging in the context of collaboration because clarification and calibration often can't be sought immediately and must be trusted to the longer process. So I'm curious what the listening experience is like. For me, this series is like jumping through a differently languaged portal into a stream that I've swum in before and otherwise have accessed by slightly different portals, or tributaries, let's say, of languaged experience. I get the feeling that no matter the particular framing of stream entry, that the four of us would tend towards finding our way into a flow that heads to the same ocean. Finding each other in this process of coming to terms, then, and through some developed sense of this now shared communication, seeing into patterns of being through them, through self, through culture, so that remembered and novel connections can form and reform, that seems to be the game here. Like a philosophical orienteering, with a starting set of clues, some old maps from different centuries, and a somewhat arbitrary end. And yet the process of orienting and reckoning with the transformations of map and territory on the way seems to me something much other than arbitrary. Life, then, as a kind of meaningful response to the phenomenology of lack. Anyway, just a chat, really. Over to Cadell. And thank you very much to all the patrons for your continued support. 
it means a great deal. For those of you wishing to support the channel and the project more broadly, you can go to patreon.com slash voicecraft. All right, so we're here for the philosophy of lack with uh, OG Rose, uh, Tim Adelin, and Alex Ebert. Um, the philosophy of lack, I think, has a really interesting um, historical context, namely because when we think about the history of philosophy, um, we're actually thinking about a discipline of knowledge that has its grounding in the concept of being. Um, and oftentimes, when we think about the history of philosophy in the Western context, um, we start with a narrative that philosophy began with a man named Parmenides, who theorized the notion of an absolute being, um, and actually that this theorizing of an absolute being comes as a type of defense or as a type of negation of the void. Um, that the void is a danger, that the void is something that we should avoid, um, and that being is something that philosophy should align itself with as the true path, um, and that that is so-called the, the, the path of wisdom, let's say. So philosophy really has its grounding in being. So when we think about a philosophy of lack, I think we're really turning philosophy inside out. Um, we're, 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 we're turning philosophy um, from a discipline concerned with the existence of something or the presence of something um, into uh, philosophy concerned with the existence of the opposite, the existence of nothing or the existence of something missing. Um, and I think that in the, the history of Western, again, in the Western context, I think that this something missing um, finds its sort of epistemological location in the emergence of psychoanalysis in the 20th century, namely that um, subjects submitted themselves to a process of analysis um, because they were in a type of emotional, spiritual sickness, that they felt that there was something missing. Either uh, uh, this constituted a sort of obsessional neuroses or this constituted a type of hysterical neuroses, but nonetheless, that there was something that the subject um, needed to work through, uh, through analysis, and namely that there was something missing. Mm -hmm. um, and in that context, I'd just like to sort of bring it around to feelings I've had in my own personal life, namely this, this feeling that being, um, or my being, so that the human being, um, was... was missing something, that there was something in my day-to-day -day life, that there was something in my um, life world that was just uh, sort of like a, an inexpressible something missing. Um, I think that uh, throughout the course of time, perhaps the biggest events that sort of made this something missing more obvious than anything else is, uh, for example, in the experience of uh, a romantic breakup, for example, like when you when you fall in love and 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 it falls apart, there's this feeling of lack. There's this feeling of direct confrontation with the void that you can't get rid of. Uh, I even remember, for example, after my first breakup, um, 
trying to search online if science had produced a pill that could help me get rid of the feeling of this lack. Um, and, and obviously stumbling upon the fact that science had nothing to say about this. Um, <laughs> then I also sort of had the same feeling happen after sort of um, catastrophes as it related to my own professional development. You know, you have this big idea of becoming something. And then after you become this something, like for example, I was motivated throughout my adult life to become a, a, a doctoral uh, candidate and then to achieve my doctorate. And then once you achieve it, you have this feeling of uh, this wasn't the thing. Uh, it, it, it didn't work. Um, that there's still this lack here. It, it almost brought me to face my day-to-day -day life that much more intensely than before. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the, you know, the course of day-to-day -day life, I, you know, there's just this feeling of any of my desires, whether they're related to sexuality, whether they're related to, to food, you know, the base sort of base functions, uh, whenever I reflect on these day-to-day uh, -day experiences, um, I find that I'm not eating necessarily because I'm hungry or I'm not, for example, um, masturbating, obviously, because I want to reproduce. Um, you know, the evolutionary functions, but because there's a, an existential feeling uh, mm -hmm. that I'm lacking something, <laughs> that I'm, I'm lacking the, almost the perfect state of enjoyment, let's say. Um, and images will come in my mind um, of this perfect state, which then provokes an excitation that I seek to act out mm -hmm. or, or, or attempt to embody somehow. Um, um, so uh, this is sort of what I'm trying to get at with a philosophy of lack. And, and I know each of you in turn have had your own sort of experience and relationship to this feeling of lack. I think it's a important philosophical topic because um, it brings us to deeply personal issues. And at the same time, it sort of, I think, has not gotten the treatment in professional spaces that it deserves mm. precisely because our philosophy has its grounding in a notion of being, of something. And also our professional identities are images which pretend to give this illusion of power. Um, so it's, it's an identity which doesn't lack. It's an identity which gives this appearance of fullness. It gives this appearance that I'm strong or I'm powerful or that I know. But lack is the opposite. It's that I don't have power. I don't know. And I'm missing something. <laughs> and, 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 and so it's the opposite of what we traditionally think of as professional identities. So I really think a lot is on the line with this conversation. And I know, again, we've, we've, I've had my personal conversations with each of you about this. So um, why don't I pass this on to you, OG, and uh, and and let's uh, let's dive into it. Excellent. Well, well, gentlemen, it's wonderful to speak to you, and I can't imagine a better way to spend a Saturday night here in Virginia than speaking about lack. It's a perfect subject. It's wonderful. I'm lacking a party, I suppose. So this is outstanding. Um, no, I think that's exactly right. You've had this focus on being, but then after perhaps Nietzsche with the death of God, which is symbolic of the sort of death of the absolute, it's kind of come roaring back. It's like, hey guys, y'all never thought about nothing very much, did you? You just sort of assumed that lack wasn't a problem, and now you don't have a choice but to think about it. And actually, arguably, we're facing a lot of consequences because we weren't well trained in thinking about 
lack and identifying with it and uh, learning how to um, not fill it with something, but instead to integrate it somehow and to find wholeness in that whole, you know, wholeness, W-H-O-L-E, in the whole, H-O-L-E. I was sign language, sorry, I took it for two years. Uh, and in not doing that, we've habituated ourselves to think that the solution is to, well, the problem must be I just need to be myself. Right. When we have that, the problem is I'm not being myself. Well, what's that? You're trying to bring being back into yourself. But if there is, in fact, something about human beings that is fundamentally lacking, that we are not a perfect unity, then if we just be ourselves, we're just going to keep being that thing that has this sort of lack in ourselves. And no matter how hard we try to be ourselves, it's still going to be there. And then we're going to just conclude there's something wrong with us fundamentally, which can have uh, lots of problems because we've never heard of, um, well, we don't have trains of thought, like you say, that are habituated to thinking about lacks and thinking how to, uh, Thomas Jock and a good friend of mine, um, we did this paper where he said, lacks are not nothing. Uh, and he talked about Aristotle, how a lack is actually does have form. I guess a way to put it is um, when I'm doing my taxes, the IRS are not in the room, but they are in the room because I'm thinking about messing up and they not being happy about it. So they're absent, but they actually are there in a very real sense. Um, and so, but the problem is if we don't have a category of lack and we just say, well, it's nothing, then when you feel those holes, you're, those lacks that you're describing, where you say, well, they're not real, just get over it. You know, they're not real, they're just nothing. So get over it. They're not a real, that's the solution. Just bring in more being. And that's not the solution, but instead learning to integrate nothing. And I think, you know, thinking about theology, you have like Master Eckhart in Christianity, for example, that talks about the negative theology, thinking about God as nothing, because they had a real understanding that if you only ever thought about God positively, it wouldn't be long before you ended up in heresy and idolatry. You'd start conflating capital G God with lowercase g good, because you forget that your idea of good is not the same of what is meant when you say God is good. And so they kind of understood that you need to bring in a, no, you need to understand that God doesn't exist. You need to understand that God doesn't, isn't good, because when you use your, those terms, you're always doing it in your framework. And if you ever forget that, which you inevitably will, if you only ever use positive theology, then you're going to fall into idolatry and heresy. And rather we, we follow those conclusions or not, it's almost like in philosophy, there hasn't been a negative philosophy per se, you know, and there's have a negative theology, but we haven't had a negative philosophy. And I think it's what you see, you're following the tradition of being, and that set us up for, you know, the, the psychoanalysis, the psycho problems, and all the, the problems we have. And that's why it's such a, an important topic. There's there are very real stakes. Wow. Cool. Really yeah. good to be here. Man. You know, it's kind of interesting. I enjoy uh, listening to you guys so much. And I enjoy the change in tempo that it even feels like for me to begin expressing in relationship to what I've just heard. And I find that I find that very curious, these ways we these ways we differ and yet are oriented <laughs> around similar phenomena. Um, when I think of lack, I, I think of, well, trivially what I'm without. And I think of what I hope I can make of myself and make of life in relationship with others. I think of the desire 
I feel when I'm most connected to come to a crest of fullness and then face the necessity of letting go and recognize that that moment of being let's say maximally involved and responsible must give way and that my holding on to that too long is in some sense a fundamental corruption of what feels to me to be the adaptive affirming life process so this relationship between affirming life as a being mode appreciation and whew, like i'm right fucking here i'm in it and i'm not thinking of me i'm just in it i'm in flow like how beautiful that is and all of the stages aspects of myself aspects of my relationship that are coming to their own forms of uh, attainment at different on different time horizons and this dynamic equilibrium of the parts of myself understood at the levels biology the social the psychological the aspirational existential that there's something to coming into alignment across all these levels and more which is which is desired which i desire and recognizing that um inherent in the fulfillment of that sort of alignment is the necessity to effectively give oneself to extinguishment which is no word man that's just a trip it's just a trip and um when i conceive of that fully or attempt to bite into it it becomes one of these hyper objects that i cannot uh i cannot box up it involves this relationship with the transcendent and nevertheless a life process and nevertheless the requirement to at some from some reflective disposition understand the structures i'm embedded in because those very lenses of my understanding are also those which will um ultimately be insufficient um even as they are critical to stand on or see through so these are some initial sort of reflections that come to me really pleased to be here and uh i get a lot from from each one of you guys in speaking to you individually so i'm very excited about what can emerge in these dialogues All right. Wow. Okay. Great to listen to you guys. Okay. So this is what I'm thinking while y'all are talking. 
<clears throat> just thinking abstractly for a moment. Anything short of infinity is less than whole. Mm -hmm. Anything short of infinity is less than whole. Nothing, being equilibrium, is the eternalized state. The ideal state is a state in which we need nothing. And so then it would follow that I need nothing. I need nothing. I need it bad. I need to want it and desire it and cultivate a desire for nothing. And I think that in some sense, that's what we're talking about here. If the ideal state needs nothing, then I need nothing. Mm. <laughs> and I think in some sense, that's what we're all after. Um, now, just to get more physical for a moment, Nothing is something. There is no nothing, right? All of this negative space is substance. It might even be consciousness. Maybe one day we'll find out. I believe in nothing. <laughs> I love nothing. I want to be nothing. Because when I am nothing, when I am it, it ingresses through me. It comes through me. I become a vessel because I want nothing. And so nothing wants me. And I create the, you know, the idea of the individual is the idea of a, an occluded self, a self that has created a membrane around itself, imp impermeable, individual no longer the chalice, no longer having ingresses for nothing to enter, but rather a single circle with a hole in the center of it. That is the state of the individual. And then as individuals, we look for stuff to put into it, to define ourselves further away from nothing. We fill it with something. We fill it with this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing. And that, then we get to this, you know, mimetic desire and Girardian sort of, you know, shit show. But I do not believe that that is our only capacity. And I might even say, I do not believe that that is our natural state. It certainly is not the state of creativity and it's not the state of flow. The state of flow for me is an emptying of myself where my contents, all of the things that have stuffed me up are now contending with the flow. They're, they're contentious and I must remove them, empty myself and allow stuff to come back in. And, you know, and then we collect, we reify, and then maybe we disseminate. And then right after disseminating, you know, I want to go back to the, to the ingressing where I have that flow coming back in. So I think that that's just the way I wanted to start is um, I think just with that for now.
Awesome. So like the first thing I want to say is like where I place a philosophy of lack is kind of against both like the naive new ageism of wholeness and like also against kind of like the traditional monotheism of God. Because whenever I run into the traditional monotheism of God or like the new age wholeness, I get like this idea that actually what they're doing is um, repressing or avoiding the wholeness. Like by wholeness, I mean like the, the H-O-L-E, like that Daniel started off with. So it's like taking off the W from whole. Like there's a lot in that. Like, and it's like the shift from like the whole with the W is always this image of the perfect connectedness or the perfect unity. And like the whole without that, the, the W is kind of like, it's, it's my subjectivity almost. It's kind of like how Alex Ebert was describing the circle with the whole in it. Like it's like you, if, if you, if, if you pretend you don't have a whole, I think you're just living in relationship to a static image or something like this. So like, there's a lot, I think in this, and I think that's also connected to what OG was saying about that lack is not nothing because lack has a form. So it's like by observing your own lack, the form of your own lack, you get sort of uh, intuition perhaps about the nature of the, the shape of your own desire. Mm. So like the fact that I started off this talk by emphasizing my collapse in breakups and my collapse in my professional career and then my being brought to the day-to-dayness of like say food and sex is like the shape of my lack mm. if you like 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 if i just observe my circle over a 24-hour period like i like to call it like a mobius strip like if i observe my mobius strip over a 24-hour cycle then i can start and i pay good like if i pay as close enough attention as possible to a 24-hour cycle of my being then I get a sense of the shape of my lack. And, and so I can start to work with myself, if that makes sense. Like otherwise, I'm just living in relationship to a, a, an illusion, which is actually obfuscating my attention of my day-to-day -day self, of my 24-hour self. Then the question comes by what methods can I cultivate awareness of my 24-hour rotation, as it were, you know, to, to get a, a sense of the shape of myself and to accept the shape of myself, um, which is huge, right? Because if can you accept the totality of the shape of yourself and in your day-to-day -day relations, are you interacting with people who could accept that 24 hour, you know, the shape of yourself. Um, I think that this is like, I guess what I'm trying to express is kind of like, 
the starting point of like a dasein a, uh, or, or, or a day-to-dayness of the lack that could actually practically help one reach this, what I think uh, Alex Ebert was describing as this nothing as the eternalized state. Because, you know, like the I am nothing, that everything is kind of flowing through me as, as kind of the ideal state. Um, because otherwise, it's kind of like, I don't know, you're, you're constantly dealing with the friction or the bumpiness of the, 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 the things you're attaching to because you can't simply be with yourself as you are, if that makes sense. Like, like you're constantly contending with like what I would want to call like the residual attachments of your desire to be whole in the naive sense. Mm. <laughs> and 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 that takes a lot of breaking down that takes a lot of you it, it I, I i sort of i sort of i sort of think about it as like um it requires a lot of shedding it requires a lot of letting go um this is like where I, and this is where i'm going to end but it sort of reminds me of how um tim was describing you know this this feeling of holding on too long and that this holding on too longness is uh, a corruption of life. Mm. Um, It's preventing me from living. Um, And and I guess then where I'm going to end is like, it, it brings you to the necessity of in order to live, I need to metaphorically die and I need to build in this shedding process in order to affirm the totality of my being. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pass that on to you, OG. No, uh, that, that's excellent. Uh, and, you know, I, it, it reminds me of what you're saying about holding on and holding on too long. Uh, Mr. Ebert down there, that wonderful uh, article he put out on Avoid Dance on the idea that if you're not, you uh, you know, why does a, uh, what is cancer? It's a cell that refuses to die <laughs> because it refuses to die. It holds on to life too much. It destroys the whole. I think that's a fantastic metaphor. But you see, man, come on, guys. If we got to, like, hold on and then know when to let go, that's hard. That means we have to be aware and think all the time. We don't want to do that. Come on, just give me a prescription. I'm going to hold on to that and just go because what you're saying means an actively thinking life an actively aware life and uh now capitalism says i just need to get the right outfit and i'm good to go i just need to find the right house and i'm good to go what are you talking about regular thinking i'm supposed to be comfortable but of course something that's comfortable in this sense dies uh, and that's not good um you know there's also something i've been thinking about on these uh one uh, the 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 infinite what you're saying there even on the idea that we want infinity and what is it you know infinity you know infinity needs nothing that's hot that's really good that reminds you of like nothing matters well then nothing matters that's really nice and so there's this funny idea and it's interesting too because i go back to theology a bit there really was this understanding that if you did not have a robust concept of nothingness somehow in your theology you were going to become a heretic like if you didn't understand that you are nothing and god is all that exists or that your understanding of god is nothing compared to the infinite then you're going to be a heretic because you're going to be but people are like no we know god we have a connection to god but then of course that became a dream for an absolute unity and then you get all that and then you have all the religious wars and conflicts and different things. And, uh, and so it, it's hard to find, I guess I, um, it's hard to find a religious war that was started on negative theology, 
really hard to find that. <laughs> and so, you know, usually it's a positive theology of some kind, some kind of special connection of the state or people with God. But when you, it's hard to find those people that are going to go to a, think they should go kill all the heretics that they have a really robust negative theology. And it's funny because something like that seems to apply to us. And I guess, you know, someone may have heard me saying that philosophy has not done a very good job of nothing. And they'll be like, well, what about the existentialists? What about, you know, uh, sought and being a nothingness and all those people? The problem is that they're, it's just kind of nihilism. I think I really prefer the the um, Kyoto school that makes distinctions between nihilism and absolute nothingness. Um, you know, in, in Sartre, there's a sort of idea that we're nothing. And then, you know, but there's nothing like, well, what now? It's kind of a negative vision. I think we can talk about later how you want to move it also onto a positive aesthetic vision where you're moving forward. So there is talk about nothing, but just because there's talk about nothing, it might just be talk about nothing. Uh, so there's been, but also problematically, a lot of the existentialism was in fact a reaction to Nietzsche's declaration per se. And since it had wasted thousands of years, uh, not getting habituated to it, I don't think it had a very good framework for operating. Because what I like to talk about that, you know, that we've all talked about is kind of moving something about lack to ontology. And also, I think in a lot of existential thinking, lack is nothing, in fact. They, these are blurred together. It doesn't have this sort of special role. And that's not quite what we want to do there. Now, of course, to iron that out, you would need different papers. And then uh, lastly, I would like to say, isn't it funny that if you don't accept that there's something lacking, then you can't be W-H-O-L-E whole because you are something lacking. And ironically, what you end up doing is if you refuse to be W-H-O-E whole in that lack, then you live according to holes, H-O-L-E. Things that, you know, once I get that job that you don't have yet, and since you don't have it yet, you can imagine how great it's gonna be. Once I get that status and you can imagine, you can, a hole is something you can fill and you can fill it with your ideas. And following, as we know from, uh, you, know, you know, I guess in the preference with Hegel, this idea that ideas present themselves as kind of part of the absolute with a sort of A is A, maybe Plato with form. So you can, it's easy to project because there's not that reality there, a certain sort of perfection, and then you, go to it. And when you get there and it's not that, you make a new H-O-L-E, then a new H-O-L-E and a new H-O-L-E. And then it's repetitive. And what we were talking about the other day, Mr. Ebert, when you have that repetitive, what is that? Nothing. Uh, and so ironically, the inability to integrate lack is how you end up in nothing. And yet we tend to think that integrating lack is how you end up in nothing. It's this complete paradoxical. And I do think it's partially a hangover, just like Cadell is saying, on um, this tradition of um, meditating on being to, to the point at the exclusion of taking seriously lack and not just conflating lack with nothing. Yeah, really good. Really, really good. So I really like that the notion has come through very strongly, I think from everyone, that the pursuit of the finite whole is in some sense a source of, a source of pathology in a, mm. in a very deep sense. And, um, you know, at least since my, my early 20s, when I was writing about this uh, in particular in my own work, um, I always, I could not really make sense of, of wholeness. I could make sense of a whole making, which is, I think, what's coming through as a kind of undercurrent here. This a processual sense of being in relationship to this process of then becoming, um, incorporating the the... the it's lack in some sense, you know, it's whether it's breaking into parts or this um, lack of alignment. There's something that comes from the, from underneath, which uh, will destabilize that particular image you had or something like this. Um, but actually I like to pick up on uh, a point in particular as well, 
that you raised, Daniel, about uh, uh, this notion of like religious wars, yeah, and that um, these hadn't been started on a philosophy of lack or something like these phrased it a lot better than this, but there was this, you know, there was very much a belief in something, right, that was worth fighting for. And, um, you know, and, and I'm no scholar really of just about anything, and I'm certainly no scholar of um, Eastern philosophy, but I have some understanding here and there. And, um, and to the extent there's something uh, named that's a real domain and dynamic to live and experience, perhaps there's more understanding than I have scholarship. There is this concept of the hungry ghosts, right, in, in Buddhism and, and this notion of suffering that is foundational to Buddhism, at least as I grok it, it denotes at the very least this desire to fill that cannot be filled, something unsatiable. And that coming into a sort of right relationship with that is, um, let's say, something that's on the path. Um, and and. To add something else else in, there's a, I find the quote, which I can't remember, but the mangled version of it is that the Buddha was really good at creating other Buddhists, but maybe not so fantastic at helping to realize other Buddhas. And so I'm sure actually he probably was amazing. <laughs> it's very hard, <laughs> but um, I guess. But there's, there's something very interesting in that because even if we were to just say, stepping away from Buddhism to hypothesize some set of, I mean, guidelines, maybe would be the best case, but some philosophy of lack, right? That could really help guide people. That there were practices to do that we came to know each other and related as something cohesive for a certain period of time about this capacity let's say to engage in a sort of death practice to renew ourselves you know to let go appropriately that the manner by which that then shared identity or perhaps um, performed set of values we'd come to associate with this process of giving up right it can I mean, ultimately, I'm interested in in the movement in something. I want to step back again, something broadly in that direction, but certainly uh, wary of the fact that um, you know, uh, I forget which which author spoke about this, but uh, I believe that the the Nazis um, did Himmler. Himmler liked. Uh, was it bloody him? He liked slipping these little handbooks of certain aspects of Buddhist philosophy into some of their, their SS and, and, and different soldiers who had to commit obviously very dehumanizing acts. The idea being, I suppose, that there's a capacity to cultivate a, a phenomenology that is, I would say, a bastardized version of some of these philosophies, but a certain capacity to really let go and kind of just accept the nature of just what is and detach from it, maybe dissociate. This is an interesting relationship between dissociation and really letting go fully, which I think is quite fascinating. And the point ultimately I'm trying to gesture at is um, something like mistaking even the practice, <laughs> even mistaking one's conception of the practice, mistaking one's 
I suppose, um, mimetic copying of what seems to be the path or the way as that which is in some sense a kind of sleeping, ready to pounce, maybe not the right metaphor, uh, way in which, you know, this, this, this structure can be, this, this ideal, these values can be destabilized. Something in there with, with your help to articulate further over the course of this or other conversations, I think is quite interesting because it ultimately points, I think, and where I'd love to go is, is, is to bite into what feels like and what can look like a kind of context ultimately for broader scale, like dignifying ethical participation in the kinds of death practices that we're speaking. A lot of people are speaking about this. I'm no one to, to champion this. There's a lot of people all over the place kind of, kind of lighting up about some of these notions. And I think it's very important, but I think, I think it's also extremely treacherous. So it's very fascinating. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely treacherous. Um, I'm going to pick up on what some of you guys said in a second. Um, I'll preface it. Uh, before I go on stage, I have a hack for achieving immortality, which I need before I go on stage. And that is to become extremely anxious. As anxious as I can possibly become. Uh-oh, uh we lost Cadell. <sighs> well, he's, he's not nothing. He's just a lack. Okay, he's a foreign, he's a prey. He, he's still existing in some way. So what were you saying on anxiety, Mr. Ebook? So before going on stage, in order to, I, I, I discovered a hack to cultivate um, wholeness, uh, to cultivate nothing, actually. And there's a combination of two things, actually. There's one exercise where you literally cross your eyes and focus on negative space and you are what you become. So you are what you focus on and you focus on nothing literally with your eyes and you just think about the space between things and you start to become that space. And then the other is this sort of more radical uh, proposition, which Tim is alluding to can be treacherous, which is really diving into the mess, exponentializing it intentionally um, to arrive at the absurdity of it. And um, it's actually, you know, Osho sort of made that meditation famous. Um, and I've used it, uh, especially back when I had a lot of suicidal ideation. And it's difficult to recommend intentionally becoming, uh, there you are, intentionally Man. becoming uh, more sad or more anxious than you already are. Um, but there is a practice there that actually really works. Mm. Um, and by multiplying the effect of my own anxiety before I go on stage to the point of absurdity, a removal occurs where suddenly I'm able to witness myself in the anxious state. And, um, and I think there's something there. So I'll just pin that for a second. Hmm. And I just want to talk about something I'm just sort of calling the, I'm sure someone else has called it because it sounds vaguely familiar, but mortal return. 
as equilibrium. And I just want to bring up waveforms and just imagine a music file. We've all seen music files if you played SoundCloud or anything. And you see these peaks and valleys going across an equilibrium. And so you have these spikes on either side of zero, death, or the void, let's say, nothing, no sound. But you have these disruptions of nothing. And let's say for a moment that that nothingness is here. And that what we're doing is going from equilibrium to something, to nothing, to something, to nothing, to something. So while you guys were speaking, I just did a, a, an, a, an experiment with myself. Because I can whip myself into such a neurotic state at on command, <laughs> I did that while you guys were speaking. And then I did an experiment where I have the void here and it's not a, it's, it doesn't, it's not W-H-O-L-E. It's just a hole and it feels bad. It's the void. And then I have, let's say God up here. And I just went, God, me, God, me, wholeness, void, wholeness, void. breathe in, wholeness, breathe out, void, breathe in, wholeness. And I just was experimenting with what it would be like to experience myself intentionally as the waveform where I have my equilibrium at center and then I'm oscillating. And each time I pass through equilibrium or death or the void, rather nothing, the eternalized state, which is here, each time I pass through it, I'm disrupting it and creating, uh, accessing wholeness, accessing everything uh, in this way. And mm -hmm. Just as a practice, um, just now while listening to you guys, breathing in everything out, me and the void. And doing that over and over again, eventually those two things, me and God, me and God, me and God, me and the universe, me and the universe, eventually they started to associate. Hmm. They were no longer disparate states, but they started to conglomerate. And a union was beginning to occur just as it was my turn. <laughs> so anyway, um, I think that there is, is something to that visual of the, the waveform and crossing equilibrium or crossing nothing, crossing the void. And that if we can think of ourselves as oscillations and intentionally pass through our nothingness to come back into something like wholeness, um, which is the way that I access wholeness before I go on stage. So anyway, to just bring that all together, um, I think it could be, there could be practices developed that would be rather simple. Um, mm -hmm. It could pass us through from void to wholeness, void to wholeness, breath in, breath out, breath in, and eventually those disparate states start to sort of, you know, associate. All right, guys, I, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm, Am I coming through? Yes, we can hear you. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Okay. My connections, my connections, presenting some some trouble, but um, don't worry about it. I, I missed a lot of a lot of what what Alex uh, said, unfortunately. But I'll try and respond as best as I can, or contribute as best as I can to to what's been said. 
Um, I guess I would start by saying that it's interesting that positive theology leads to war where negative theology has not led to war. I'm not an expert on that topic either, but there's this notion I was playing with before going live here that when we start off with a metaphysics of being, I think what we tend to do is build up that being into the perfect being. Yes. And then we try to achieve an end which justifies the means to that end. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the ends justify the means. So basically the perfect being um, becomes something that uh, would justify many atrocious acts. Right. You know, whether that's war, whether that's, you know, communism, whether that's um, the, the, what it could be a certain relationship, uh, could be it could be buying something one really wants as building up a perfect being. So you justify, for example, working a job you hate because you're justifying that based on the perfect being that you're going to attain. Um, whether that's a house, whether that's a spouse, whether that's a, whatever it is, but you're building up a perfect being. Um, and and so in some sense, that's what I take to be this fault of positive theology, which paradoxically, the negative theology, there's no war because you're going to war within oneself. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to war at the base with this, this fact that I, I exist on the condition that the perfect being doesn't exist. Like that, that's, that's, that's the very condition of possibility for me. Right. So I would just situate that as, as sort of like how I maybe relate to theological questions or how I relate to theological day-to-dayness um, is, and, and it's very difficult to do. It takes, it takes a lot of um, like, no matter how much you understand it abstractly, I find there's still like, you know, um, the, what I would call the, the struggle with, you know, uh, doing nothing in the evening, you know, like I, I'm with myself in the evening A and what am I doing with myself in the evening? Like that to me is theology. Like that's my theology is like, like I'm with myself in the evening and I could fill in the void of myself with various historical habits that I've accumulated through a need for avoiding boredom, through a need for achieving some excitation, through not wanting to simply sit with myself and observe what thoughts are coming what feelings are attached to those thoughts. Um, like, I, I really think that there's so much to be found in the man or woman who can see the importance of thinking about how I spend my evening mm -hmm. or, or how I, how I go to sleep or 
what did I dream about last night? You know, like this is again, bringing it back to like sort of observing the Mobius loop of my 24 hour self. But like, this is like, and I guess that's sort of connected to what Tim was bringing up about this realm of the, the hungry ghosts and, and, and Buddhism is that I, I guess I feel like our society is really structured on hungry ghosts. And that makes trust very impossible. It makes like long-term relationships difficult. Um, it makes sort of, it, it, just, it, just makes, it just makes life based on these insubstantial illusions. Um, and at the same time, building out a type of Buddhist culture, so to speak, has many pitfalls and many hurdles because you can sort of turn, you can even turn the idea of Buddhism into its own hungry ghost. Like you can turn it into its own idea. Like it's very hard to, like what I say, it's, it's very hard to teach silence or it's very hard to teach quietness. Um, it's, it, it, because it's paradoxical, like what we're doing right now is speech. Like if we're teaching, we teach through speech. Um, and so like one of the things I've learned in the last few weeks is to teach with, or at least, and this is something I'm really a novice at to be honest, but it's to teach through my being as opposed to teaching through my speech, how I am as a being. Um, and, and my best mentor in this process has been um, a cat. Um, because, because the, and, and, and my relationship with a cat, because the cat doesn't care about what I say. In fact, the cat, actively avoids what I say. If I try to speak to the cat, it will avoid me. But if my being is in such a way, then the cat will come to me and will, and, and, and I can, I can sort of gauge by my being how, how I'm doing in this process. Like how, how the cat sort of re reacts to me in this process is very strange. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, like, I want to like juxtapose it with something strange, which is like both like pickup artistry and um, religious proselytizing. That in both pickup artistry and religious proselytizing, there's this type of aggressive energy that's trying to get something. And I think like what I'm trying to think of is the opposite of that, where it's kind of like, I'm not saying anything or I'm not actively trying to get anything, but my very being calls forth the, the thing. <laughs> like my very mode of being speaks the thing. And I don't have to speak the thing directly like this is, I think, the crucial thing before I pass it on. And maybe this is connected in part to what Alex was talking about, about building day-to-day -day practices and getting to like this notion of what are the day-to-day -day practices. But like, I don't have to speak the thing directly, 
And in fact, when I do speak the thing directly, I'm just going to kill it anyway. But like, it's that because I have the thing in my being, I can still speak, but it's going to be about everything except that. Like it's going to be constantly around, around that, or I, I hope I'm making sense, but um, I, I pass this on to you, uh, Daniel. Well, now that you mentioned cats, I'm thinking about Murakami novels, uh, Kafka on the shore. Uh, and I'm thinking about the barn cats my kids love. So very nice. What was it? Um, I guess it was like Muhammad said, he rather like cut his sleeve off before disturbing a cat that's asleep. So, you know, cats are important. Um, you know, a few things. One, um, you know, as soon as you say something, you know, and then it's out in the world, you go, wait, no, no, it's gone. Oh, gosh. So, you know, we're talking about negative theology because someone may come back. It's like, hey, guy, what about that Zizek quote where he's talking about the Buddhists, how they're imagining their hand doesn't exist as they stab someone and therefore it can enable them. But I'd already said it's like, ah. but you see, it's very important when I talk about um, the uh, the negative theology. It's very tied with mystical tradition. And the key is a mystical tradition. Um, nothingness not, does not become its own absolute unity. And that, you know how we're talking about the problem of absolute unity? Mysticism creates a kind of bothness where you have to operate on this idea that God exists, but he doesn't exist in this kind of weird space. God exists, but he's not real. You see, the problem is that you can get, I think this is what I, my critique of a lot of existentialism is, is that it feels like nothingness becomes its own unity and lack is distinct from nothingness, although it's very difficult to maintain the language and overlay it perfectly as we have these conversations because they're all similes. But lacks are both, as Mr. Jockin was saying, as an Aristotle, and I'm going to keep pressuring him to write that paper, uh, is that uh, it, a lack is a absence that has form. And it reminds me also of your wonderful presentation, uh, Cadell, on mind that everyone should go and great, well done on the paper uh, that was published. And and so you see, if we um, if we create a religion that is um, nothing, that has a, a unified nothing, you can get violence out of it. Uh, and also, if you have an absolute being that is unified, you can get violence out of it. What seems to be interesting is it's um, it's 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 difficult to find those mystics, right, uh, that are engaging in a lot of war. Now, also, there's that what Oxford University Press book that says the myth of religious war that then claims, you know. There's no such thing as religious wars. So this is the part where you have a conversation and 5,000 people in the comments are like, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? But generally speaking, it's uh, it's it's um, when you have this bothness that you're operating in, uh, this sort of tension, the act of, say, the existentialist could leave you. It's like Camus says that, you know, the ultimate question is suicide. Well, in a sense, suicide would be an uh, trying to unify yourself in a kind of absolute nothing. You're escaping the tension, right? But then fundamentalism would be a new kind of AA where you're escaping the tension and you're existing in those just saying, well, this is the truth, these are the givens, and this is how it is. And one of the problems you do get with religion is a possibility of getting these fundamental givens that creates um, what I think it creates is the banality of evil that Hannah Arden talked about, but that's a different topic. So it's it's finding that between space that I think the word lack is, is so useful and what exactly that means we can go into. But then what's also, when you're talking about the wonderful practices, Alex, I really love that the way, you know, God, nothing. God, whole. God, nothing. That's really great. Um, it reminds me too that religions were really good at paradoxical practices. Like, you know, Jesus saying, you know, to, to live, you have to die. Or, you know, you have uh, some of, uh, oh gosh, it, oh, this is the, the saint that was with the birds all the time. I cannot believe I forgot this one. Everyone loves that guy. Yeah. Who was it? I heard the name. Uh, Putting uh, you on the spot. No, the Italian. The Italian. Joseph with an A. Oh my gosh, it's awful. But there's no, this idea that you find what? 
poverty. You know, there's this idea that when you die, you find life, these kind of paradoxical practices. And it's kind of like um, Chesterton's fence, where he talks about if you come on the woods and you find a fence and you don't know what it's there for, the temptation is to kind of throw it out. But, you know, maybe if you don't know what it's there for, you might want to be careful before you remove it, because there might be some functions that it had you didn't understand. I think something that uh, as religion wanes that we may not appreciate is those paradoxical practices that it brought with us that could help people kind of have this between space of, you know, being a, in Christianity, being a sinner, you know, or, you know, trying to move towards sainthood, these kind of paradoxical practices that today we need to make new paradoxical practices. But sometimes because I suppose of the long history of philosophy focused on being or capitalism that focuses on wholeness and you can be whole if you just fulfill your desires and all those different things, we, so we see no need to develop those paradoxical practices uh, like Mr. Ebert is talking about. So I think it is useful. Um, and Osho talks about that. You were in the Red Book, you, you shared uh, like these kind of paradoxical practices that we need to recreate that I think sometimes we don't really even realize we need because we don't even realize that religions and you know and then of course you can go into each individual religion and talk and blah 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 i understand i'm using christianity as a kind of reference point um but it they they, they offer paradoxical practices that were very very useful that we may not um appreciate that we need to bring back so i wrote a note down on the one you were doing ebert i really like that on breathing and the idea of getting into a frenzy before going on stage i'm going to use that with my kids before i go play with them i'm going to cross my eyes david hume would love that because he makes an example of the eye, and I'm going to go play with them in the yard. It's going to be great. You're referring to St. Francis, right? Yes! Yes! Thank you. I was I was going to be something. I was going to wake up at midnight in a hot sweat. Now I don't have to wake up at midnight to remember the name. Good job. Um, I have to go to the restroom. I'll be right back. I'm You're allowed. Right here. Yeah, so, so I understand that um, a hope for this uh, live stream and dialogue in general is to see about grounding some of the um, philosophy in the day-to-day -day in some sense and 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 I like you know and, and that's definitely something that's coming through here uh, both with you know kids and stage practice and cats and um and as well, Cadell, as you're uh, as you're looking towards this period of time in the evening, that's something I I relate to. I think that's very powerful, and um, and I imagine that that some of those listening will will resonate strongly with that as well. It's it can be a lonely time, you know. Uh, not for everyone, of course, depends who you live with, maybe, uh, can be a lonely time. The sense of um, not having, often not having the energy to really create what you might like or to produce what you might like. Not always. I mean, I generally stay up pretty late and often it's a wonderful creative time. But often there's a sense of me looking to fill something, as you're talking about, Cadell, and it really not being the right state of mind for me to be looking to do that in. But, you know, it's those times when I have more or less fulfilled myself during the day that make it much easier to accept being with uh, not all that much in the evening or just accepting that and that as well i think can ground us in 
the conditions we experience in our current societies it often feels you know and just as a nod towards religious war and and what have you i mean it doesn't make sense to me to to consider any war without you know um considerations of the the conditions of scarcity as well in the land and all manner of economics geopolitics it's like evolution you know all of this stuff um as i as i find myself distracted here by some by some pop-ups on my screen it's uh and and it that's and and that's the thing you know it's accepting the silence like really allowing it and recognizing that as part of the process of interaction something that's missing a lot from um many online discourses because of the medium you know it feels like we've got to fill the space with speech feels like we have to fill our evenings with productivity if we haven't achieved enough but what if we haven't managed a life where that productivity can actually be fulfilling and so we're left with actually the kind of hole that we need to fill we need to fill it with something something more nutritious we haven't eaten well enough you know in that sense we've got to fill the bloody hole so that we can pass through some nutrition out the other hole <laughs> So that's, there's a certain, it's an interesting one. You know, we have stories of, you know, the, the, the Eckhart Tolle dropping out, you know, of, of his ordinary life and spending a couple years on a bench. And we can go that way of, in, in that sense, exiting. There's a, there's a big risk with that. And, um, in some sense, that's a heroic journey, and in an, but for many people, I think it's worth considering that position also from a a certain kind of a certain kind of privilege, or at least the affordance of the affordance of um, a position of less responsibility in one's life. I'm not saying it would be unethical necessarily to to drop even loving attachments you know I, I i'm not i'm not seeking to moralize but some of what seems to be the case and part of the condition i think for the struggle that we are in civilization wide is that for all of the you know the language of uh, self terminating you know that daniel schmachtenberger speaks about comes to me here that may be a little too harsh but for all of the toxic patterns we find ourselves involved in there is also <laughs> in most cases and depending on how mystically we want to speak all cases a through line of love and value and worth and something deeply worthwhile say like the the cat you're taking care of or the family or the friends you have and there are worth there, there are things worth in some sense and i'm being a little equivocal here when i say this and that's part of the challenge with these discussions i suppose there's something worth holding on to and um the holding on to that might preclude us but the desire to hold on to that might preclude us from actually dropping those other more toxic habits and distinguishing what those 
the relationships between those things. I think that's a, a where a lot of this work is in. And so finding space, if one can, in the evening or whenever to to sit with the silence, find one's own way of coming into clarity, you know, relationships with others, interaction, a certain aspiration to artfulness in communication, a deep listening, writing, dance, a whole music, a whole bunch of things. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a process. I was just talking to my dad. Uh, he's had a couple close calls with uh, death recently. And um, he had another close call that turned out not to be a close call. And we were talking about mortality. And he said, um, you know, I'm all right. I'm all right facing my death. You know, I got all right when I was in the hospital for a month and nobody came to see me. <laughs> That's not totally true. But for the most part, he was dead alone mm. in a white room. I went and visited him once. I don't live in Colorado. I made a thing of it, it was his birthday. But he was in a room for a month alone, nothing, no music, nothing. He had a window with blinds and that was it. And he said that that month, robbed him in the most positive way mm. of it acquainted him with nothing. Mm. It acquainted him with nothing. And, um, you know, I, I think Tim's point is necessary, especially to the extent that anyone's watching this and confused that we are speaking about an in, interior um, as opposed to food and water and that obviously contemplating these things an interior nothing would come after acquiring your basics so just in case anybody out there is like these privileged four white dudes blah 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 um just to acknowledge that for everybody watching. I, I'm I'm a red, I'm red, not white. <laughs> you guys okay. might be I'm, I'm just I'm joking. White. I'm, I'm red. Oh, I'm, just, I'm just joking. No, I'm I mean, I'm wearing a tie. That's pretty good. We can all see you're white, Daniel. Don't worry about <laughs> yeah, that. I'm, yeah, you can see. Yeah, no, uh, oh, and I also want to qualify that. Um, there, you know, there is no uh, biological basis for race. So there you go. Just throw that out there. Okay, so anyway. Uh, <laughs> Um, boy. Okay. Mm. I guess I, I, I'm a little drawn to uh, two things, but, but one, one especially, um, just maybe note or open it up for discussion. Maybe it's relevant. Where did this lack begin? And, um, imi initially in the immediate sense, I think that, well, speaking for myself, when I feel the lack, it is contextual and largely intersubjectively uh, mediated, where I'm thinking of lack in terms of um, my proportion to someone else's, uh, my having to someone else's, or even simply in um, my position, 
my dreams, the things I wanted to accomplish. Where am I in that schema? How far have I come? How far do I have to go, et cetera, et cetera. The journey of life, the hero's journey that I want to project of myself into the world, not necessarily items I want to acquire, but rather things I want to be, things I want to become, that path, is, I think, largely intersubjectively driven. Now, at the same time, when we start talking about the late evening, which I think is a brilliant, you know, this should be the name of a book, because that is the time when the loneliness creeps in in the interior, non-intersubjective way. Um, and likely, that is where this all started. Um, and the avoidance of the void um, being suddenly possible with this sort of like accumulation of attentional prospects. I can put my attention here, I can do this, I can do that. And we see kids and we see ourselves divert ourselves from the void by you know, making ourselves busy. Um, so that likely is where that started, but I guess I'll, I'll leave that part there because I think that, I think that what that signifies to me is that this late evening, this or, or this evening prospect of being alone in the evening as the sun is coming down, which is inherently existential, the end of the day, the death of the day, um, I used to cry, by the way, uh, every time the sunset for about two years, I would have like a, an existential poetic wow. crisis, but it was beautiful, but it was a lot. And, um, but it was beautiful. It was poetry. The very premise, I think this is worth talking about too, the very premise of poetry, in my view, is transience. Something is elevated from, oh, that's cool, to wow, awe, because it will no longer last. And there's an inherent beauty to be found. Well, I would say poetry exists purely because of transience and purely because of imminent lack. And, um, and, then, and then to move on, and that really helps me, by the way, mm -hmm. to get really into appreciation um, I think appreciation is a key of some sort. And I think that, you know, if we were all eternalized beings, I don't necessarily know where appreciation would even fit into the mix. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then lastly, if I understand the hungry ghost um, on any level, <laughs> based on what you guys said, um, and Cadell, you brought up trust. I know I'm bringing up too many points here, but I, I do want to just touch on this. Um, so Cadell, you said that you said it makes wanting to be whole, wanting to establish certainty, essentially makes trust difficult in relationships. Isn't that ironic? Because the whole construct of trust in society, modern life today is based on certainty and, importantly, redundancy. This will be the same thing today as it will tomorrow. Therefore, I can trust it. The utter inverse of a state of lack in which I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow because I'm simply existing now. 
And our whole trust apparatus is based on this redundancy as an eternalizing sort of effect, which is of course, self-terminating and deadening spiritually and, uh, and personally. Because what we turn into, of course, the other thing that persists from this day to that day are brands. And we're encouraged, I know this is something that everybody already understands, but we're encouraged to be brands. Find yourself, be yourself, express yourself. And then once you find yourself, don't deviate from yourself, which is what my whole presentation on cool was. I had found a version of myself, so I thought. Then I changed and I got, you know, um, I got scapegoated for it because it disrupted the whole trust apparatus. And um, anyway, yeah, some thoughts. Excellent. All right. Um, I guess, I, I guess, I guess where, where the point I want to, want to start with is, I think it's, it's interesting that OG brought up that there is at the same time, the risk of the absolute being, there's also the risk of the absolute nothingness because the, like the desiring unity with the absolute nothingness is suicide. Um, and in some sense, Camus is a good example of this trap. Um, you know, maybe we could have a juxtapose here, Parmenides and, and Camus. Hmm. Um, and, and the idea that in existentialism, you actually wind, you wind up with this type of ridiculous nihilism where you're, you know, like the Camus quote, I think, is, uh, should I have a cup of coffee or should I kill myself? You know, like it's just this absurd existentialism, which I mean appeals to a certain part of us, um, but also is not a wise or sustainable philosophy. Um, uh, so, 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 you know, I guess like where a lot of this philosophy gets messed up, I think, is is in a very simple um hegelian point which is that becoming exists in between something and nothing yes so you you can't have an absolute something or an absolute nothing you have a something and a nothing and you kind of have to un like the something would be that i understand the body in which i appear and the society in which i appear and the nothing would be that i understand that i'm going to die and I understand that that I, my time is limited and I'm a finite mortal. And I can become within these constraints of something and nothing. Like to put it very simply, but I think clearly. Um, and I think that we can have philosophy that tries to enshrine an absolute being, which would be like the perfect body and the perfect society that exists forever. And then you could have the absolute nothing, which is, well, because the absolute being is impossible, why don't I just fucking kill myself then? You know, like, 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 so th there's some in between. And this is, I think, where the, the, the Chesterton's fences come in, you know, like the, the daily practices, the, 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 the religious practices, which we've lost because probably we, we didn't have wise religious leaders who actually were practicing. Right. You know, it's not so much the denomination of religion that's important so much as I would say wise men and women who are actually practicing. 
you know, like, and, and, and that I think has to be ground in the alone with the alone, which is that when you're alone with yourself in the evening, like, are you actually practicing? Like, you know, like, like it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's really a different thing. Like, I, th I think like, that's again, like where I would start, like my sort of encounter with theological questions is in the alone with the alone after existential catastrophe of my illusions have caved in on themselves. I have to confront myself very deeply. Um, and, and, and then I think that brings us to something else that both Tim and Alex brought up that I think unifies some of what they were saying at least, which is both kind of like on the one hand, the privilege of confronting the void, like, um, well, I think maybe both Tim and Alex brought up this privilege of confronting the void, which I think is worth dwelling on a little bit. Um, and in order to sort of go to the depth of what this privilege is and some of like the pitfalls of confronting this privilege, I would like to give like my critique of the Buddha story, which is that in order for the Buddha to become a Buddha, he had to first be a king or a prince. Like he lived in royalty. Like a homeless person, someone who was born into poverty, doesn't become a Buddha. And what that means is the paradox of that is, and maybe it's also the paradox of Buddhism as a social historical phenomenon, hmm. which is in order to achieve enlightenment in some sense, you do have to go through the illusion of having wealth. You do have to go through the illusion of having enough food of sleeping with women or men or, or like living in and, and, and trying to, you know, you have to have your heart broken. Um, you have to have uh, fought for the career, had the career, uh, tried to strive for the dream and have it fail. Like you have to go through that, which is the building up of a certain sense of self, a certain sense of ego in order to lose it in order to know what the void is deeply. So uh, like to me, if like, like if I was in, like if I was the mentor for an 18 year old, I wouldn't tell them, you know, uh, because I had my heart broken and because I realized going for a doctorate was an illusion. I wouldn't say, therefore don't do it. I would say, do it, fall in love, uh, you know, start the band, um, go to school, uh, do whatever it is that your heart sets your heart on fire. Knowing in part that it might all collapse and will likely collapse since we're all going to die. So it's going to collapse. So somehow it's going to collapse. How it will collapse, you don't know. But that that whole process is part of becoming someone like a, 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 an Eckhart Tolle or an Osho or a Krishnamurti or a, an actual wise, enlightened individual. Uh, the question is, what is the historicity of your collapse? <laughs> so to speak. Like, like but, but I think that's like where I take that. So like, for example, how I started this conversation 
is I was talking about how I've had my heart broken and I've had my illusions collapsing on themselves in a certain historical form. Now, probably you have had a different story, but it might have some similarities, but it'll have a different historicity to it. But what's at stake here is a type of ahistorical and atemporal um, confrontation with lack, which leads to potential for enlightenment. Um, and I think that as being, like, we're all pretty much of the same age, I would say, or in the same sort of, you know, developmental zone. But that what are the practices for people in our developmental zone that help them transition into a wise adulthood? And, and, and what I, before I pass it on, I would say that a wise state, a matured state of adulthood is very rare and most don't end up embodying it because there's no, there is no other to teach it. Right. Um, oftentimes. Um, certainly not in our society. In our society, we see images of people trying to maintain a type of juvenile youth into uh, eternity. Like, to, to like, you know, the ridiculous, most ridiculous example for a lot of women is trying to look like a 20-year-old girl when you're 80, you know, or, or for the guy, you know, to like look like Arnold Schwarzenegger forever or something like that, you know, like to give it the most ridiculous examples, you know, like, but, but I'll just pass that on to you, OG. No, you gentlemen are fantastic. This is lovely. Uh, and, you know, to what Alex is saying, you know, if life didn't end, life wouldn't be precious right? But here's the problem. If life ends, that means there's scarcity. And what tends to cause so many problems and conflicts and scarcity? So the very mechanism that can contribute to making things precious can also turn to us looking at it as scarce, which then can contribute to neurosis or conflict or different things. So how do we learn, with, how do we learn to live with things that are limited and see preciousness in that limitation as opposed to scarcity? Now, of course, you also have this dilemma on capitalism, like you're saying, you know, if you look at Marx, Marx is interesting because, you know, when you read uh, the capital, he's not saying he, he talks about capitalism as a, having a necessary role. Right. There's kind of like he's not saying there shouldn't have been you have to go through capitalism to get to communism, socialism, you know, all these different terms. Um, but he's not saying it was therefore bad, you know. Um, and the problem is, it's almost like, I guess, for what Marx may say, just similar to what you're saying, Mr. Epert, about the cancer cell. The problem is capitalism didn't know when to, to, to change, when to die and therefore became cancerous. And then turned into corporatism or something like that. It's hard to even find conservatives who are pro-free markets who aren't critical of the current state of affair, which is quite inter interesting. But similarly, sometimes when we talk about um, first world problems versus second world problems and third world problems, um, they're kind of like on a, a scale of severity as opposed to being on a continuum. Um, and you, so it almost, it's almost like what we do now is we have to be careful before we start acting like first world problems, which are more of the neurosis or these different things that we're describing. Um, they're real problems. People suffer because of them. The lacks are not nothing. And you see, if you go, well, those are first world problems, man, don't worry about it. And therefore you're tempted to say they're nothing. 
bring in more being per se, and that's no good. But because it has to be on a continuum, like once you solve the economic problem, well, now you have the, the mental problem. And the person in, who's dealing with mental problems, just telling, I mean, I've seen it, just telling them, well, at least you have a house, you know, at least you have food, that's not going to solve their neuroses. Now, at the same time, there there is something to be said about gratitude. It's this very, it's a space that you have to operate. It's, you know, you don't want to be the um, butterfly that's looking down at the caterpillar and say, well, at least you can walk. And you don't want to be the caterpillar looking up at the butterfly and say, don't complain to me about wind, man. That's wing problems or something, right? You know, it's all on the same continuum. And lastly, what I find really interesting is on this question of where does the lack come from? I did a lot of work in Hinduism and there's this old debate between these two books, uh, these two thinkers, Louis Dumont, who wrote a book called Homo Hirogotesis and Dirk, um, who did Cast of the Mind. And, you know, uh, DeMont wants to argue that the caste system came into existence because there's something in human nature that wants to create hierarchy. And, you know, Dirk comes along and he says, no, nah, man, it's the British. You know, the British did it. They created the caste system to control because then they could get the Brahmin and they could control the Brahmin class and then control everything. And, you know, the whole thesis I did is like, well, maybe it's a mixture of some kind. Isn't that that's always the good move, right? Where you mix them and you're like above the fray because you mix them and everyone gives you claps or whatever. But no, seriously, it's like there is something about the human psyche that likes order. And then it's easy for, say, the British to come in and turn that into a hierarchy that they control. So likewise, I do wonder, maybe it's something where we're stuck in a human brain that really likes stability and repetition, but we exist in a world that won't let us be stable and comfort all the time. So there's a disconnect and that creates a lack. And then capitalism calls along and says, nah, man, I'll tell you what's going to solve it. It's going to be um, YouTube videos or, that we're making now. Oh, no. Uh, it's going to be like a new house or something. So there might it might be interesting to do sort of a um, uh, DeMont-Dirk debate in regard to what is it in human nature. I mean, you know, as you know, as y'all all know, I, I want to argue that ontologically we're AB, not AA. And we don't want to make a new AA out of being or a new AA out of being, you know, nothing. We want to exist in this tension, et cetera, et cetera, uh, so that you don't fall because there's a ditch on either side of the road and you don't want to fall on one or the other. And that's the other thing. It seems like so often the name of the game is this kind of transition, this kind of knowing when to switch, when to pin. It's like, all right, the life drive, you know, it, it, you wouldn't get to a successful um, socioeconomic order. Like, let's say in the West, generally speaking, of course, there's racial you know, problems and different things. But um, you wouldn't get there if you didn't have a life drive at all. You know, the life drive gets you to the place where you create a middle class. But then when you create the middle class, if you hold on to that life drive too much, it becomes just like you talk about, Mr. Ebert, a death drive. So there has to be a transition phase. But, but this is really hard because all your evidence shows you that you should keep doing what you've done so far because look where it's gotten you. You know, if you're just empirical, like, look, we made like a really rich society. So you have to kind of fly in the face of, uh, you know, what your economic data is showing you and, and kind of go, no, we have to, you know, it's kind of like so much, if, if you really didn't care about extending life expectancy, you know, if you didn't really want to make technology that got rid of sickness because you're like, well, we don't want to hold too much onto life, then, you know, we'd all be dying at 40. So there's a good degree of the life drive to extend life expectancy. Maybe people would argue with that. But then there's this weird thing where it's like too much. And then you get this like living forever, maybe some of the transhumanist movement or different things that can seem problematic. I'm not an expert in that field, so I'll be careful. Uh, where we've got to make these transitions, these almost flip moments that if we don't do it and our brain doesn't want to do it and everything that we've observed up to that point in history suggests we shouldn't do it. But if we don't do it, 
we turn into these sort of neuroses. We get into all these different problems. And, and that might be a role of philosophy, right? I mean, if you don't have any empirical data so much through history to show you that this has occurred, you have to have the abstract reasoning to just um, be aware of your phenomenological condition to such a point that there would be reason to think you need to have a transition. But if you've kind of thrown out abstract thinking, generally speaking, in your colleges and you don't think it matters and just be practical or whatever, then that may contribute to the inability to make that transition. Mm. Damn, really good. So much good stuff there. OG and uh, and Cadell. Yeah. Alex too. Alex, there's one there's one thread that um, you were exploring, which I I, I need to go and, and listen back to again. There was such a beautiful moment there that I, I wanted to speak to. And it's maybe it will come through. Uh, I can't put my finger on it right now. Just wanted to name something I cannot name in some sense that I really appreciated. Um, uh, but I'm going to try and see if I can put together, uh, weave together some of these threads kind of working backwards. Um, I'm hearing uh, an, an affirmation of the importance of this dialectical tension between the life drive and the death drive. Um, I'm hearing, I'm hearing also the point made, which I think is, uh, which, which is related to that, of course, which is, which is an interesting one. Um, this notion of, uh, human beings desiring order and in some sense being embedded in a world which uh, will always upend those plans. Um, and it brought to mind um, also just to, I think, further drive the point of uh, challenge in um, that, that uh, Dostoevsky makes when sort of fantasizing about a utopia or something like this, that, that, um, as soon as it was attained, you'd have those people immediately look to break those boundaries and create a little bit of chaos. So it'd be interesting. Um, and then, and then I'm also hearing uh, something which I which I also wish to deeply affirm. I think it's a I think it's a profoundly. I mean, I've I mean I've currently got this loaded as a profoundly important um, um, ethical point, ethical stance. Um, and it's a little tangential, but I was also hearing the, the absolute importance of not judging another's suffering, of not judging another's lack. It's a deeply de-dignifying and undignifying thing to do and an incredibly narcissistic thing to do. Like all of a sudden, you know, my suffering, hey, like honestly, shut up with your bollocks, hey, I'm suffering here. Like my God or like – or there's something there's something so so i mean so dangerous about that path um but i i, I want to also uh jump back to something cadell was raising um this uh i suppose i suppose it's, it's it's a through line of this whole discussion um how to live before letting go the importance of living before letting go um in terms of counseling another on their developmental arc through life like, here are my failings don't fucking have a relationship yeah don't pursue that object of your desire just stay fucking in the basement man like what an awful like and yet here's something because what i'm trying to do with this is i'm trying to i'm trying to i'm trying to really challenge us um because because it seems like there are some things we just ought not do. 
it seems that way, right? Um, and let me let me go at this by giving an example. It's like I I really hope I don't need to learn that uh, sort of jumping off a cliff or like not looking as I sprint towards the edge of a cliff for a finish line that's a meter away is like uh, and I you know <laughs> like a good thing to do or something like this um, or like will I actually break and die if i jump off this cliff i mean I, sh I should be able to learn this thing right we can't teach each other the various ways we can fall off the fall off the path here yeah, metaphorically drastically then we're not doing any form of worthwhile intergenerational knowledge transmission like but this is the most basic point in the world but it's it's kind of remarkable now as we enter this age of um again uh, daniel schmachtenberger term, term everybody talks about it, but there's exponential technology, you know, and in my way of thinking, just more and more power in smaller and smaller boxes. There's only going to be more big red buttons that if we touch them will fuck us up. Right. That's interesting that there's something about, and, and this gets to some of like the real animalistic tension that we as human beings are facing because we are so fragile we have built so many complicated structures the real of the complexity of cosmos is is so so ready and willing to uh, just obliterate anything we could name as anything we could name as a as an object of care in some sense and so hence the criticality only more of this cultivation of a relationship with the transcendent. But I want to hold these things then in tension because the necessity of, of the death practice of the cultivation of the relationship with lack. And at the same time, <laughs> ah, I don't know how, I don't know quite how to say on the other side of it. Maybe I've spoken enough to the tension there, but it's, it's, it's something like there that I guess just in some sense it's in to it's 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 the quite it's the conservatism and the progressivism on just another axis. It's like we can't just have every motherfucker just going to the boundary and just playing with every fucking thing because it yeah, that is not sustainable, but but we nevertheless need to go there and we can only become ultimately captured by those who go across the boundary find something really fucking interesting we want to talk about mimetic desire we just want to whatever it is that attracts people to like the the um that that you know that one who's gone over the edge and come back and seems to understand and embody the 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 the, the fulfillment and energy of that um heroic journey man and because people don't want to go there themselves they'll just follow that and so it's like we have to go, we have to cultivate the development. And yet, the, and it ties up a little bit with the point about the Bard Absolute, which we haven't presenced. What I'm trying to get to is that there's this, there's only a critical rate, there's like a coming to criticality, criticality of, of, an, of an ethical dimension to life that has been there always when it, 
because we we have the capacity to take life and the capacity to hurt others and to inflict unnecessary suffering but there's something about the scale of it and the and the fragility of ourselves in relationship to technology and our interconnectedness um to say nothing of this this the psychodynamic kind of space of the psychedelic infused uncertain territory of like being in novelty together in this liminal state of becoming inside a kind of barred absolute type dynamic these most in some sense sacred of um dimensions my god um yeah that's the way to end that my god hey <clears throat> um, so perhaps a little contra Cadell. I believe that the that the, the interiority of ourselves is so rich that we may that all that is required to experience the crash of self is to dream is to imagine the life that you want to live, that you wished you were living, and then to experience that crashing. Uh, the proportion of pain, emotional pain, tends to be pro proportional to the, the height of the expectation and the, the depth of the fall from that expectation, the, uh, the plane of reality. And um, in my experience, and so I'd like to think that this is a universalized conversation in that sense, where we all have this interiority of dreams and this failure to achieve them. And that tension in and of itself provides, um, I think, the reason to consider uh, lack to the extent that one might be able to become a Buddha, that one might to be able to experience the crash of the interior uh, as incompatible with um, one's predicament. And um, I'm doing, I think I'll just be, uh, ex be personal here for a second. I started doing some uh, somatic therapy. When I was three years old, I was put in therapy. My father is a therapist, psychologist. He did uh, something called um, psychodrama, sort of a predecessor to body work um, and somatic therapy. And uh, I got in trouble for uh, hitting kids when I was three. And so I was put into therapy immediately. And then they found out my nanny was hitting me. Little uh, imitation there, mimetic uh, desire even. And um, so I'd been in and out of therapy for a long time. And then finally, I decided to say, fuck that and no longer look uh, to anyone else to sort of fix me. But then I returned to somatic therapy, where the body itself is telling me um, my problems. And I'm searching the feelings of my body, which are very often, you know, when I experience the void, it's somatic. Um, when I experience the void, it's somatic. In fact, it's, it's usually placeable. It's in my throat or it's in my chest. It's a frenetic state. And for me, 
I experience the void negatively in the context of my goodness being questionable, which is usually a preponderance of, uh, of experience out in the world and people telling me I'm a piece of shit, telling me that I'm wrong or me gleaning via various sort of intersubjectivities that I just am, that I fucked up, I'm not good enough, something's wrong. And that when I do meet the void, the void will know too. And that I will be forced into a reckoning that I will be unprepared for. And that the void will strip me, denude me, and reveal to me my true self. Otherwise, what is the fear of the void? And one thing that I find very useful is actually adding nothing to that equation. Where I add nothing to my throat. I add nothing to my chest. I add nothing to the space that is in disarray. And that state suddenly eternalizes. And suddenly I ingress the universe and all of those considerations sort of disappear and I essentially become a process. I become a process rather than a being, rather than a static entity. And, um, and I become the lack, the lack of a self that is static, the lack of a self that can be judged, I become it all. And of course, that's you know the sort of state we all want to achieve. Um, and I, want, uh, I just want to, on this notion of like how to convey, you know, <laughs> wisdom, essentially. So we have this, I mentioned I was messing around with some equations earlier, and I'll just do the very simplest version. Minus X, so minus a thing that I'm lacking, I'm lacking X, minus X plus X equals zero. It does not equal X. I do not get X by adding X to minus X. I get zero. So then, minus X plus X equals zero. If I substitute the first minus X with zero, I don't have to do the equation. I don't even have to do the work. And that's maybe magical thinking, but it's actually my experience. That if I add the lack, if I add nothing to the problem, the problem sort of unfurls. And I see myself as process. And then I can meet the lack because I am it. You know, and um, anyhow, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, that that formula that formula resonates a lot. I think that formula actually can be used to describe a lot of experiences um, that I use to explain this process of coming to lack. Like for example, um, and it's basically a formula. That, that formula is exploited by advertising companies. You know, like you fill in the Nike shoe, and you know what I like. It just fill it, or you fill in the McDonald's hamburger or whatever like that but it, it equals zero you know you, you get the nike shoe you get the mcdonald's hamburger and then you go home and you feel the zero 
So I, I just think that that's that's a that that's a precise formula. Um, I'll also sort of here want to share a quote about how we find ourselves in this void, that we find ourselves in this void, even if it's a confrontation that's unpredicted, even maybe even especially if it's unpredicted, you know, like just like getting. I always give the example of getting run over by a bus, like getting hit or you go to the doctor's office and you get told, you know, you have terminal cancer. You know, like that's this unpredictable confrontation with the void. But here's a, a quote um, from Hegel. And before I give it, um, I just want to say that I'm getting some feedback audio. So if you guys could mute your. So the the the, the quote here. Let me just give it. For this consciousness was not in peril and fear for this element or that, nor for this or that moment of time. It was afraid for its entire being. It felt the fear of death, the sovereign master. It has been in that experience melted to its inmost soul has trembled throughout its every fiber and all that was fixed and steadfast has quaked within it. This complete perturbation of its entire substance, this absolute dissolution of all its stability into fluent continuity is, however, the simple ultimate nature of self-consciousness, absolute negativity, pure self-relating existence, which consequently is involved in this type of consciousness, end quote. In other words, the confrontation with death or the void. Again, I think that quote is my favorite quote for like the experience of you go to the doctor's office and you have terminal cancer. This being totally, totally destroyed and that you, you find your truth in that moment. And I think that all I want to say is that whatever it is that, we may explore in conversations about death practices, I would say that it, it has to channel connection with this at, almost as an embodied ritual to the point where one becomes comfortable with this. Another practice that I, I think is sort of preparation for this um, that I found useful is staring into the mirror for extended periods of time and repeating to myself that what I'm looking at is not me. That's not you. <laughs> I think it's really useful. Um, so all I want to say here, I could um, maybe clarify one thing, which is on sort of like my 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 notion that you have to sort of go on the, you have to go on the process of like getting the, going for the goal, going for the dream, going for the goal before then you can reach the enlightened state is like just saying that there seems to be, there seems to be a processual nature to the achievement of enlightenment in some sense. That's my only, my only point with that. But um, maybe what we could do is give some sort of summary of how we feel 
about this conversation, how we feel about what we've achieved maybe in discussing the philosophy of lack. I will just sort of preface that roundtable, sort of like conclusion thinking about this statement by saying, I sort of started setting up this conversation by proposing that philosophy as a knowledge practice in the West grounds itself in an absolute being. Um, that this notion of absolute being, uh, narratively speaking, often we think of Parmenides. Um, and, and, and even when we think about what absolute being might look like, we get this notion of like some spherical light or some being that's like everything and everywhere, omniscient, omnipresent, just everything. Just this being. And what I'm like almost trying to play with here is that when you think about this notion in its own historicity, in its own social historicity of like, it's been thousands of years since Parmenides, we have the problem that the human subject has a great difficulty connecting with whatever this absolute being is to the point where we need an entire discipline like psychoanalysis to treat subjects who come to us with these neuroses, even though we're in a heightened state of economic well-being, even though we're in a heightened state of, of wealth, that, that no matter how much wealth and material or being we accumulate, people feel something's missing, <laughs> that there's something lacking. And, and I think that a wise culture would, would, we need practices to help people deal with this kind of objective lack that people feel. And, and the formula that I think Alex proposed that I think companies utilize, like again, the Nike shoe or the McDonald's hamburger to fill your lack that only makes you feel more lack in a bad sense is something that we need to, to, to confront. Um, and I think that the stakes are extremely high um, because like when you think about the conflict in the 20th century with capitalism, we have communism, but communism didn't have a good understanding of the human being. Like it, it was a naive understanding of the human being. Communism didn't have a total theory of human development, how to commune with each other, how to romantically engage with each other, how to engage with a, the full development of a human being in the context of community. These are deep, deep, deep questions and they require extremely wise practice. So that's where I would sort of pass it on uh, and, and, and my sort of final thoughts, I suppose. Well, that was excellent, Cadell. No, um, it, it's uh, you can't get anywhere if you don't know where you are, can you? Uh, so if we have the wrong understanding of what human beings are, we're not going to be able to get anywhere. We can come up with a lot of destinations, but they may not be good and we may not get anywhere. Um, you know, now I have this idea. Now I want to like homo heragotis. I want to do like homo lacus or something and try to understand why we have this ontology. I love the idea. Maybe dreams are part of it. Maybe it's because our brains want stability in an unstable world. I mean, Christians will say, you know, you're made in God and you want to return to God. It's very interesting. Uh, lacus is probably not a word. Word, but it sounded Latin-y and I wanted to do it. And I, to your point, 
I think it is incredibly important that we engage in this conversation and ideas because we were talking about Camus earlier. I am yet to meet someone who has finished reading Camus and now they are a syphysis who can smile. I have not met anyone who has gone through the existential text and afterwards you're like, yep, I can push a boulder and I can smile, baby. No, there's something missing. There's something incomplete. There's not, I'm not saying there's no use to it. And also it's interesting because a lot of, you know, you talk about meditation, OSHA and things, these practices have a role, but it's moving between them. And maybe we've lacked a um, understanding of what humans are to know that we need to move between them. Maybe we've lacked an understanding of the role of these transitions where we say, okay, yes, we need to economically provide for everybody. But then when we get there, we also have to be ready to deal with the mental health issues that may develop. You know, there may be these, all these kind of misunderstandings of which are captured by some sort of narrative of stability. Uh, once we get the right economic system, then everything's good. Ah, once we get the right A is A, then everything will be good. That that has contributed to the problem. And uh, these conversations need to occur because it does not seem as if the uh, understanding of the, the problem is adequate. And therefore, uh, as a result, we are yet to, I, I, like I said, I've never met anyone who has finished reading Camus and now there are syphysis who can smile while pushing a border. So I think it's important. And the last thing I was going to say is I think uh, is this interesting idea that the topic of lacks seem to be incredibly practical. You know, why is that? Well, maybe it's something where ideas relative them to themselves or they don't contradict. You know, the, the world, when I look at my laptop, the laptop stays the laptop. It doesn't contradict contradict, but the lack becomes in the between space of those things, of the idea with the world, that then makes it to where when you end up talking about lack, you're always talking in or in a experience of. And so that's another reason why it might be um, useful, and I could elaborate on that, but uh, useful is that it's a, it's a very phenomenological and practical philosophy. Um, and this also will suggest, I think Camus is interesting, because as you read his canon, you go through his work, there's, I feel like, a realization that his prescription for how to be a smiling syphysis does not quite work. And I wish he wouldn't have died in that car crash. It would have been very interesting to see how his thought develops. It may have ended up in a philosophy of lacks. And I think the very fact also suggests the role of the great literature in this conversation, but I will save that uh, for, for next time. And I caught you right when you were drinking, Tim, didn't I? My timing was perfect, wasn't it? <laughs> My timing, it was, that was bad. Like I knew you were about to finish. <laughs> I was just like, fuck it. Man, so good. Like, uh, I have so much appreciation for all of you. Really enjoyed being here. Um, so it's uh, it's one of those ones where I feel like I am reluctant to really open up and say too much. Um, uh, so maybe paradoxically, then I might just leave with a with another moving towards a question um, for, for our next dialogues. And I'll begin by remembering Alexander Budd said to me in a podcast in talking about sort of spiritual practice in particular, but I think this can be applied to lots of other things, the triple of intention, ceremony, and integration. And uh, if we think about the context of sport, uh, if I'm thinking about playing football, I'm thinking, all right, practicing the game and reflecting on it and recovery or something like this. Um, when we're speaking about wisdom practices, and again, it gets to this relationship, well, I haven't presenced it, but the relationship again, with, as a nod to Bard, um, is between process and event. Um, there's something about 
practicing without it's without a directionality toward let's say an event or a certain form of contribution which feels lacking in an incoherent sense um and so as we sort of find ourselves in what does seem like to me a coming together of a number of a number of people nascent communities this merging and generative interaction we hope between a bunch of different traditions and philosophies still very much on the edges but as there is this seems to be like the cultivation of new possibility i am i do continue to be interested in the sorts of events for which our practice um requires in some sense for its coherence to matter now we can say okay it's always available in relationship and and that's true i'm not and that's the thing about speaking like process event to me it seems to be always process and event always <laughs> um and nevertheless i guess at more of the level of influence which is something that might be worth nodding to given this is a not just a conversation between the four of us that's being streamed um and this is something quite close to um a, a, a something of a, a discourse that, that i'm working in i suppose is trying to understand the and and sort of the, a, a way to be in a kind of ethical relationship with the transformation of the communications commons um and the dynamics of uh, influence and audience and uh, production and consumption which um again threaten uh and are very much apparent in um what seems to be holding together the psychologies of so much of our plays a role in holding together the psychologies of our the members of our culture um netflix various ways to access hypernormal stimuli that paper over the cracks so the nod towards next time along with so much else that you, that you all have raised uh, is is to consider for me it's always to consider like how like what what does a more ultimately inclusive way of performing look like bringing practice into community this like what is it to commune but in the age of the digital i think these are just really really interesting questions to always like the the relationship between inclusion and coherence is so fascinating i'm not talking i'm not talking naively about inclusion hey definitely not but um i'm also there's something and 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 i don't believe really anyone's anyone's claiming this certainly not here or otherwise but there are notions of ecologies of practices and there's the importance of doing kind of self work 
but my god you know and lockdown shows me very much this it's like important to have practices to call on when i'm stuck in a tiny apartment for like more than half the year but i don't just want to be practicing so i can stay in a tiny apartment for the rest of my life something like this so um a nod towards the future of of of, of building again is a hazardous but critical question and i i'm not proposing it as a naive one there's so many traps of centralization and totalizing narratives and all the things we've presenced but nevertheless i i hope as a as a distributed collective that includes more than the four of us here if we don't venture coherently toward experimenting with the process of answering and of and it's not i don't know the right language it's the process it's the dialectic not about final solutions but man something like that how to relate to that what can that look like uh, these are questions i'll be i'll be asking so thank you so much guys it's been such a privilege here uh, yeah this is really fun and uh, thanks for tim pointing out that uh, this conversation is part of a larger conversation that's happening. Um, I'm really fucking happy to be a part of that conversation. It satisfies one of my lacks. It satisfies one of my desires and it feels good. And there's something about becoming that is fucking great. And so while we develop this philosophy of lack, I'm also appreciating what the lack projects me towards. And I think in some sense, this is where ethics comes in, a sense of sort of pre-thought proportional thinking. <laughs> We've looked around, when I say proportional thinking, I'm trying to add a fifth P to Verveke's four Ps, a P that intrinsically imbibes us with a sense of proportionality, which then translates to ethics. So I can see where the asymmetry is. So I can see where the holes in the tapestry and the quilt of society are. So I can be of service, wherever those holes may be. And I feel like this is part of that proportional understanding for me. And, um, and that's sort of a pre-thought, pre-language experience. Uh, almost entirely semiotic. I think there's a lot, you know, I, I, the event and uh, process, which I love, and I also, my, in, in my own words, and in the context of this in some sense, I think it's helpful to also provide uh, optional language, that, which, which is uh, ritual and tradition. Uh, the ritual and then the tradition, the repetition of it and the, the degradation of it, um, and then the eventual ritual again. To me, ritual I've come to recently understand as a creative process inspired by nothing, inspired by the ingressing of the universe, inspired by inspiration as opposed to contention and all the contents I've built up and, oh, I know how to do this procedural knowledge, but rather this intention. And intentio in Latin is reaching out, breaking the membrane, of the self, breaking it open so that 
it can ingress, so that nothing can ingress, so that I don't know can ingress. And then just add a couple thoughts here. Um, this is going to seem sort of ridiculous and obvious at the same time, but um, I'm sure we've all noticed that the more stuff people accumulate, the richer they become, the more stuffed up their fucking neighborhoods are. The less noise you can make, <laughs> the less fun it is, the less you can trespass. I have innumerable uh, stories to provide in case anyone, any one of you don't for yourself. Um, the accumulation of content, of certainty, of self, that compactment um, requires a stronger membrane to protect it. The more stuff we have, the more of ourselves we think we're certain of, the more, the stronger the membrane must be to keep those contents in, the less we are able to access the nothing, the universe, the stuff, the substance. And so it is, I think, that the less, um, or sorry, that, that lack is like true lack, the sense of like, oh, I'm lacking, is a lack of nothing. And I just want to keep fucking reminding myself of that. Lack, the feeling of lack is actually a lack of nothing. I don't have enough nothing. And um, that is that is my fucking, I, I need to remember, I need to like paint that on my forehead. That is, that is the shit. And that is the creative state. It yields everything that I fucking care about. And um, so I'm really happy to be having this conversation. It's, it's super helpful and, um, you know, keep talking about it. All right, guys. That, yeah, that was great. I'm really, uh, really grateful for all of you as well. Um, I just want to summarize for either the people viewing live or the people viewing after the, the fact that this was a conversation um, between four between four humans that are um, just inquiring about lack on an existential level and um, trying to think a philosophy of lack on the basis that um, paradoxically we're missing a, a philosophy about the fact the fact that we're we're, we're lacking that, that that there's often the there's often the pretense or the performativity um, that we know or there's a pretense or a performativity that we we have the thing um and uh i hope that we were able to do this uh, uh opening topic uh, opening conversation on lack um some justice in that and 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 with some humility so um on that on that note um i'm gonna i'm gonna close up and um until next time Thank you for listening. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider sharing them or leaving a review, and perhaps also to consider supporting it on patreon.com voicecraft. It will help sustain the podcast, build the network, and make possible more community events and educational resources. There are breadcrumbs to follow if you look.
thrill is gone. The thrill is gone. The thrill is gone. The thrill is gone. The thrill is gone.